Today on How I Scaled My Team, we're excited to host Vered Raviv Schwartz, um, who had uh, an amazing career, several executive roles in several unicorns, which you'll tell us about in a minute. Um, I'm privileged to consider her a friend, a mentor, um, and someone that uh, I end up spending not enough time with, but uh, quite plenty of time. Um, and by the way, I never asked you whether your maiden name is Raviv or Schwartz. Which one was it? It's Raviv. That's my maiden name. And then the Schwartz is with you. Uh, remember yeah. that? Spaceballs? <laughs> we get that a lot. Maybe yeah, Schwartz be uh, with you. Of yeah. course you do. Uh, so thanks for being here. Uh, and obviously happy to have Romy with us here. Hi. Okay, so before we dive in, Verit, uh, maybe you start off just giving us a background. Uh, where you've been, what you've done, what made you so successful? Well, maybe we'll get to that later as well. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll try to do it in a nutshell. I started my career as a lawyer um, doing IPOs and mergers and acquisitions. And in the year of, I call it the first bubble, um, 2000, I decided that it's really, uh, that my role should really be a part of the leadership teams in an organization and not just consulting uh, from the sidelines. I always felt we were like drinking the champagne after a successful deal and then I'm going back to the office to work on the next <laughs> deal. And you really feel less, you know, connected and engaged and I wanted to be a part of it. Um, so started my career with Radware, who just uh, went public in 2000 and um, built my role there from a 100-people company, leaving when we were 800 people, uh, following um, with MediaMind, who was a private company that tried to go public in 2008. We Some of us remember what happened there. It was uh, I remember as well. <laughs> For some people, that was the first bubble. <laughs> yeah, the first bubble burst, at least. And um, eventually did go public and then sold the company uh, for $520 million, which at the time was a lot of money. It was a whooping amount. Exactly. We were like on the front page and all that. Um, and followed by Kenshu. And uh, uh, I'll start with the fact that at MediaMind, I scaled my role um to be general counsel and VP of global operations, which eventually led me to the COO roles in the, the next companies. And again, after Kenshu uh, doing a similar role, um, I went to Fiverr, which was, um, I'd say, a unique experience for me. It was the first time I joined as, you know, the first executive uh, joining the founding team in a very small company, 40 people only. Um, and stayed there for six years, scaling it all the way to hundreds of people just before the IPO. And currently, and for the past almost four years, I'm the president and COO of Guesty, a property management software company uh, with 350 people, company uh, with uh, over uh, 12 offices. Around so, the world. so full disclosure, just uh, for for anyone's listening. So Varin and I, uh, our paths crossed actually when Varin moved from Fiverr um, and I started Stoke. And this is how um, a mutual friend introduced us so I can pick her brain on um, the freelance economy. And obviously Fiverr is super successful. I guess they now super successfully have a tendency of picking up uh, great companies early on. And, and, and maybe I'll, I'll, I'll touch on something you just said. You came from Rodware, 800 people companies, um, um, media mind seismic, which was, was super successful back then. Um, it was and, also about a thousand people when I left. Yeah, yeah. But, but super successful. I mean, revenue wise, it was a big company, not just headcount. Um, 
and then kind of transitioned. Um, I'm leaving Kenshu aside for a second. That was a, yeah. a, a, a short gig, although my background, came, we, <laughs> we, we did not know each other back in the Kenshu days. Um, but then you took a bold decision moving from A, it, it's not common to see someone moving from the legal side to the operation side. Legal is very much considered back office. Um, I say 99% of cases, legal teams are legal teams. They don't move on to the um, to the business side. And I know you're very connected to that right now. And I'm sure Romy will ask about that in a minute. Uh, but then you took a decision to taking on a COO role in a small, not promising startup back then, 40 people. I think it was still in Benjamina, right? It was still it up was in, it was in Benjamina in a small town. And it was... Um, uh, the person who introduced me to Micha Kaufman, the, the CEO of uh, Fiverr and founder of Fiverr, uh, was Guy Gamzo. He was an investor at MediaMind and also an investor at Fiverr. And he said, I have this, you know, company. I, I really think you should look at it. It's really interesting. They really need someone like you. And I said, OK, what are they doing? And he says, well, they're selling all kinds of things for $5. <laughs> and just think about it back then. OK, it was the early days of the gig economy. And I went to a 40-people company selling Things for $5 in a small town. My friends all thought I was completely out of my mind. Lost it, yeah. Even yeah. when you tell me now, it doesn't sound reasonable. Right? <laughs> right. But I think it was, uh, for me, the decision was I always, you know, join companies at a later stage when, you know, things are kind of, well, the infrastructure is built out and then I come and I don't like some of the things I see and I think we need to fix some things and change some things. And for me, it was the first time to say to myself, what happens if you can, you know, start it from scratch, you can build it for yourself. Can you, can you really be better at it? Can you, can someone that will come later say, okay, this infrastructure is actually built correctly and uh, doesn't have to fix what you did. And that's what I tried to do at Fiverr. I think I did a decent job. That's my feeling. We'll definitely get to the fixer and builder yeah. kind of uh, <laughs> hats of, of your career. And I must ask before we kind of dive into really um, what you did and what you build and what you fixed uh, in different companies, what made you do that kind of switch? Uh, as Shachar said, it's it's super uncommon um, from legal to becoming, you know, CEO at companies. What was what was like the the hinge or the feel that you, you want to move to this kind of position? Well, first of all, I think it's a persona matter, right? When I started studying law, I never planned to be a lawyer. I got there accidentally. My original plan was that law was a good, you know, basis for um, learning the business, for negotiations, for a certain type of thinking. And I planned to learn law, do my MBA, and then, you know, go into business. Uh, and then, you know, life, you know, takes its turns and you're saying, okay, I have this good internship and a great office. I'll do that. Then you're offered a job there and you're saying, well, I'll take it. And um, so I, I think that eventually I got to where I wanted to get. It just took me about eight years <laughs> instead of less. Uh, I'm also not, you know, unhappy about the road I took. I think it, you know, taught me a lot. I think the, that the legal profession does um, give you uh, a lot in terms of, uh, you know, conducting uh, business operations. It's Again, it's the type of thinking, uh, the ability to... Uh, read things in different ways, uh, negotiation skills, the ability to think about an organization differently, about evaluating risks uh, in a more concrete matter. So I do think that the legal profession allows you to get some um, 
some good qualities as a manager or as a leader. And I do see more and more people from the legal profession looking to expand their role. So, um, Vert, for me, you know, when I think of your career now, you know, I never stop to think about it you know, when we interact. But you're kind of the poster child to, to scaling up companies, right? You joined companies in various stages. You took them from one stage to the other. Um, and I briefly saw how you operated when you joined Guesty. Obviously, I didn't, I didn't know you when you joined Fiverr. And you kind of took a company from a phase to a different phase. You kind of helped them um, transform, if you will, if, that, if that's the right phase. Um, so as you're making that transition, how do you identify... Uh, well, maybe two questions. I would identify when is the time to move from startup idea company to a corporate, right? Again, I don't know if corporate, I don't mean it in the foul term of being corporate. We're just <laughs> discussing corporates outside and, and the files of corporate. But you're, you're turning into an, an organization, very structured, very methodical. Um, and uh, how do you identify the right point to kind of say, okay, we we need to operate differently uh, versus running quick and dirty? So an example, when I, you know, when I talk to the teams at Fiverr today, um, I hear a lot of stories about the early days. Hey, you know, we paid all freelancers through Micha's PayPal or things <laughs> like that. Uh, and obviously, at some point, you can say, okay, we can't do that anymore. We got to put some infrastructure in place. How do you identify that point? Because that's pretty much what, if I, if I understand correctly, that's a lot of what you do. You come in and say, it's time to move on. It's time to do things differently. How do you identify those points? Okay, first of all, I don't think there's one phase of moving from a startup to a corporate. It's not one time in a company's lifetime. I think that... The high-growth companies I've uh, seen and were involved in, it's, you know, every phase is different and it can change every three months or every six months because you constantly grow, you constantly encounter different challenges. Uh, You're at a different scale every six months, right? We see companies moving from being a 50-people company to a 200-people company. In a really short time, yeah. Yeah, which, by the way, it just becomes worse and worse in (laughs) the past couple of years. Uh, I do believe, first of all, in laying the groundwork uh, from the outset, um, thinking that you will become a large company. Okay, I don't like the word corporate, really. I think it's a large organization has certain requirements. You need to think about uh, process. You need to think about the proper handshakes within the different departments in the organization. You need to think about compliance or at least not getting into huge trouble when you're, you know, going from, you know, being a small company off the radar to uh, all of a sudden uh, be uh, very prestigious and well-known and getting, uh, you know, inquiries that you wouldn't get as a 50-people company, but you would get All of a sudden, there's something to lose. Right, right. But you also, like, people know you and that, you know, could raise questions, could, you know, bring the regulators to ask questions. And uh, so I don't believe in, you know, being really quick and dirty and doing whatever you think is right at that moment. And then all of a sudden becoming an organization, you need to start thinking like a big company. Again, not in a bureaucratic sense, but thinking, okay, let's make sure that what's really important would be documented, would be it with the right process. Let's see how we don't get ourselves in trouble in the next phases of the company's life. So that's one thing that I did, even at, you know, when we were 40 people at Fiverr, I came and said, I think this needs to have a process. I think, well, the budget process needs to be much more organized than let's put a million dollars here and a million dollars there, right? So because at the end of the day, you want to build a machine that can scale and grow uh, and build one block over the other. And if you don't have that foundation, the building will collapse eventually. 
Um, so I think it's really about starting uh, to build an infrastructure and then reevaluating it all the time and seeing what you need to change. I want to ask you and take back um, the building process um, at Fiverr being 40 and, you know, growing with the company uh, to the hundreds and in a, in a team perspective. Um, you know, regarding um, building teams, what was the biggest challenge um, being a couple of people, you know, tens and scaling? Um. I'm not sure I can identify one single challenge, but I think... It, you can you the, can say both. <laughs> you can say a couple. It's fine. But I think, yeah, but I think that uh, the, the idea is when you're a 40-people company, you, you need to start with building departments from, from scratch, right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, for example, we didn't have uh, any fraud prevention or trust and safety or anything around, you know, thinking about who we bring into the marketplace and how do we, um, you know... Uh, protect our customers from risks. And uh, we started with one person. Okay, it was bringing that one person abroad, aboard to uh, really think of, you know, okay, what are, let's evaluate the risks. Let's think what are, you know, are the very basic guidelines that we need to implement? What are the, you know, very basic filters we need to put in uh, to the marketplace? And then it started growing from there into, Okay, what kind of a team do we want to hire? What are the risks? How do we address them? What type of personas we're looking for? Because it's a two-sided marketplace. Okay, there are risks associated with sellers and with buyers. And uh, it grew up into a huge team. Today, the trust and safety team is is a huge team across the globe uh, dealing with uh, anywhere from, you know, the the content uh, uh, aspects to the financial aspects. Um, so that's an example of a team that didn't even exist. Uh, support, how do you scale support or, the you know, all the customer-facing teams is a very challenging role. It's, also, it's easy to address uh, questions when you're at a very low scale, okay? I remember that we talked about the fact that Micha and Shai, the founders of Fiverr, used to be the support team, right? Because, <laughs> okay, you get an email here and there and you answer and you're saying, hey, do this, do that, or you're not happy, okay, let's... But all of a sudden, you need to scale that knowledge that, you know, the culture of the the support team that you're looking for into dozens of people. That's not an easy task. How do you build the education and training around uh, your team scaling. Uh, so I think in all departments, you find out that when you have individuals, they, you know, kind of, you know, make their own path and make their own decisions. And all of a sudden you need a team to be working together under the same uh, guidelines, creating consistency of the customer experience. And you can't do that just by talking to someone on the corridor. You need to really create the process and the um, the system to support that. Again, I remember when we met at Guesty, um, I don't remember if it was the first or second conversation. The first thing you did, you came, uh, how many people are there already? Two, two plus, 200 plus Guesty? No, there are 120 people. 120, okay. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't five or 30, 40 people, okay? But uh, it, there was a company. Um, I remember one of the first thing we, we talked about back then, it was, it's like you, you dealt with, uh, should or shouldn't you guys give 10 bees to the employees? I remember that <laughs> conversation. 10 bees is, is like the card you get to, to, to actually get some food. Um, and I remember that was thing you dealt with it. It's like you're, you're COO. And then, you know, 12 months later, um, 
uh, we met each other again. I think it was California. You were heading there and you were going for fundraising. So it's like from dealing with the nits and bits of giving people a few, um, you know, $100 a month to go get food well in, in the office to go raise $50 million from leading VCs. It's it's a huge spectrum. How How do you do that transition? How do you understand internally, what is my role as a COO? Is it doing everything? Well, first of all, you one thing uh, that you need to know as a COO as you scale is that you need to evolve in your role. Today, I'm much less involved in many things at Gusty compared to wh- where I was three years ago because I just didn't have the team to do it for me, right? And so it's funny. I remember that... Uh, at Gesty, uh, maybe less so because I joined when we were over 100 people. At, you know, uh, in my first days at Fiverr, I was, um, you know, managing myself, basically, in, you know, several departments. I was leading, you know, legal. I was leading risk. I was leading this. I was leading that. And I was kind of telling myself what to do and complaining to myself if I had to. <laughs> but uh, so, so I think that as the company grows, the CEO needs to uh, understand that Sometimes you need to let go of things and make uh, decisions about some things and not make decisions and stay out, actually, of making decisions uh, for your team. And you need to allow them uh, to grow. You need to empower them. And you need to stop thinking about those things. Um, uh, Being very uh, agile and versatile in what you do is a part of the role. I think that if you're not that type of person, that, you know, can juggle 20 balls in the air, can, you know, quickly move from thinking about one thing to the other thing, it's probably not the right role for you. You need to be very flexible in your thinking, open-minded, understanding how to balance, you know, the corporate challenges, as as you may call them, with the fact that you want, you have a startup culture, you want people to feel comfortable. And it's really about, uh, you know, having that sound, um, you know, mind around, okay, you know, sometimes you need to cut corners. Sometimes you need to let go. Sometimes you need to, um, you know, balance what's, you know, the accurate way of doing things and what's, you know, the reasonable way of doing things and what employees can also take, right? Sometimes you have, you know, a process that might, you know, be perfect, but you know people cannot, you know, actually comply with it. Just doesn't make sense. It's too complicated you know, that they'll resist. So you need to find the ways to be more flexible and find that silver lining um, in in how you do things or how you present it to the team. Um, and um, I like the fact that the role is very, you know, uh, versatile and, you know, involves a lot of different things in a lot of different departments. And I think what, you know, actually takes, you know, if, if I need to, find uh, the common theme and all of those things. It's really that holistic thinking of, you know, looking from above, from, you know, the uh, 30,000 mile perspective and saying, okay, where do we want to go? How do we make it happen? And how does it tie into all the different teams in the organization? Um, You know, when I think about it, I think one of the traits that you possess in in, as COOs, um, you have to contain... um, CEOs. Every company you walk into, not every company, CEOs have attitude, they have egos, they have, you know, ambition. And I think the successful COOs are coming in as someone that helps contain the CEO, their wills, their ambition, their attitudes, their egos, and kind of help put it into a container that is supporting the company's growth and not 
killing the organizational culture. Uh, I know three of the CEOs that you worked with, and in each mm-hmm. of them, different attitude, completely different attitudes. Uh, each of them have ego and attitude that, that needs containment. I'm not going to take you down personal routes. Don't, don't worry. I'm not going to ask any embarrassing question. Maybe later after we go there. But do you think when you think about uh, what made you successful, is that being able to be the trusted advisor to the CEO and being number two in the company, helping him to the move to the other side or the operational role, understanding how do you scale, you know, support teams in the Philippines? I think that when you, one of the traits I believe I possess is understanding people. And you need that, you know, in any uh, leadership role in the company, you really need to understand the people and know how to communicate with them and how to communicate tough news to them, how to communicate the fact that, Currently, um, they're not doing their role as they should, even though they did it successfully for the past two years, as an example. You need to be able to communicate or help the CEO communicate um, things in a way that you believe people will accept it. And sometimes you give them another perspective. You're their mirror, in a sense, that to to mirror certain situations to them. Um So, yeah, I feel I am and, and always had the pleasure of being the, the advisor of, uh, of a CEO, but it's not just that. I'm an advisor for several people in the management uh, team uh, and to people not in the management team. I feel that uh, it's really important to have in the organization that person that people trust and feel that will always be transparent with them, again, even if things are not going well and Um, we had you know situations like that both in Fiverr and and guestiets and, and in other companies it now looks like everything is always beautiful and all the companies that were in were, were, are always successful but we had our rough patches as well and going through that um in a leadership role you do that by being you know transparent and open but also you know being very clear in your communication in terms of also like you Not overdoing it or not putting people into fear or um, you know even bad news can be communicated in different transparent ways that are you know more encouraging or less encouraging and I think part of my role was really being a, you know uh, one of the leading communicators in all those organizations both upwards and down uh, to the entire team I'm going to take the word communication and, um, you know, going through organizational changes, um, there's this cliche, you know, that they say communication is key. Communication is everything. Uh, it's true, um, but you have to do it right. And there's a lot of things to communicate uh, from the management um, to, uh, leaders down to, to the teams and, and bottom up and top down. And um, how do you actually do it right? You have been through many, you know, organizational changes um, and dramatic ones and huge ones. And do you have some, you know, things to notice, things that you have to do from like a manage, uh, management perspective, but also, you know, from team leaders, um, what has to be there to make it smooth, to make it, you know, because people don't like change, um, fundamentally, maybe. Yeah, it's funny because you talked about the legal profession in the past. And I think one thing that the legal profession does teach you is... weighing your words and putting a lot of emphasis of the words you use and the way you use them. I also uh, like writing as a hobby and so so words are really important to me and I think that I really put a lot of thought into how I communicate things, what do I say, 
Um, and I encourage all uh, managers, leaders, team leaders to do so. Uh, and as a result of that, um, again, even if you want to communicate negative news about the company or communicate to someone that his time in the company is over and he should be moving to his next, he or she would be moving to his next phase of a career somewhere else, there is a way to do it without, you know, insulting someone or, you know, being uh, very empathic about it or explaining to them very clearly why you think it's the right move. And that you didn't just, you know, uh, wake up in the morning and, and decided to do it on a whim. You you put a lot of thought at it and you explain it. And people like to understand what's happening. They like to be explained. So, And I think that even if you have bad news, either on the personal level or on the company level, if you're very transparent and clear and you explain it correctly and you make people understand, they um, they accept that and they appreciate it. And uh, I think as a result of that, a lot of people, even people I said goodbye to in previous companies, we we stayed friends and uh, we stayed, uh, you know, in very good relationships because sometimes they even understood that it was their time to go and it was the right thing for them. And I convinced them that that, you know, that's the way they should look at it. Jumping into um, actually something we just discussed walking in, um, you know, in guesting now, um, you guys are obviously almost at the, you know, the eye of the storm of uh, COVID and the impact of, you know, travel tech. Um, how do you guys navigate uh, the last, the past two years? Obviously, um, well, you'll tell us um, a lot of changes, a lot of impact. How do you guys navigate? Did you is it cutting headcount? Is it did you change plans? Um, well, some of it's public news. You guys acquired several companies. I, I lost count at some point, <laughs> uh, but uh, would love to hear kind of how you guys dealt with it. I remember early on, um, I spoke to some people at the guestie team, and I, and I remember it was like, is this Armageddon? Is this is this the end? Is this the beginning of the end? And obviously, it's not. So um, tell us. Well, I think the first thing to do is not panic. And I think we did that extremely well. Um, early March, you know, uh, 2020, a lot of people said, okay, it's the end. People will never travel again. We're doomed and things like that. And uh, I think uh, Amiad, the CEO, and me were very quick uh, to respond and say, guys, let's not panic. No one knows what's going to happen. So let's, you know, take the minimum steps to uh, contain the situation uh, we did cut costs, but not dramatically. We wanted to make sure that we don't lose, you know, team members that we will need to rehire a few months later. We didn't want to um, harm the scale we did build and, you know, the departments and direction that we created. Um, and fortunately, uh, we were correct. And after about three months, so I'd say around June, we started seeing uh, travel pick up again, especially domestically. We um, saw that things are getting better. And we also thought, how do we do, you know, how do we make lemonade out of the lemons that were given to us this year? What can we improve? What new products can we launch? What companies we can acquire as a result of the situation? Because some of the companies we acquired, we probably wouldn't be able to acquire in normal times. But actually, COVID allowed us um to convince them that the right thing is to actually get, you know, uh, unite forces and and uh, work together. And as a result of that, we bought a competitor or, or uh, you know, an, 
complementary product and things like that, that, you know, again, would probably think that they could make it on their own uh, if it wasn't for COVID. Um, we were also able to raise funds, you know, our last uh, uh, D round from Apex Digital Fund uh, was done, at, again, at that eye of the storm. But we were able to convince investors that travel is rebounding, that the success is there, and that if there's a good product with a good company, it will remain a good product and a good company, even through COVID. Um, so I'm extremely proud at what we did. I think it made us stronger, or it made the management and the teams more united and more proud of what they did. Um, and so I think one lesson to learn is just, you know, take it one step at a time. Don't panic. Uh, plan in baby steps. We had at a certain point in time in 2023 different badge budgets. Okay, <laughs> the doomsday scenario, the base scenario, and the optimistic scenario. Um, and um, I'm happy to say that eventually we got to the optimistic scenario. But again, we just prepared, did a lot of prepping uh, for every possible scenario, but without uh, throwing that panic at the team and and really navigating it as a management team. Yeah, I think one of the things that, um, you know, the way you're explaining this, um, there's a lot of professionalism in the process. There's a lot of less emotion and a lot more. It's like, okay, let's look at reality, what reality means. Uh, we can throw a fit, maybe take 48 hours to be to allow ourselves to panic and then come back to the table and, and make judgment calls based on information, data, what we know um, and what we estimate to happen and not um, get too frustrated or uh, or depressed, if you will. Did you have to, um, you know, new strategy shift, um, new people came on board, like from different, um, you know, areas of expertise or um, did the hiring efforts change? Well, the hiring efforts um, changed in the past year for all tech companies. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's uh, quite an experience. Uh, but through COVID, we didn't really change. I mean, we did have to change. Uh, take new team members on board from four companies uh, we acquired. Um, and um, I think it takes a very strong culture to be able uh, to take on new people from new geographies and make them feel like they're part of the family. And we put a lot of effort in that. Um, and yeah, we expanded also the, the product. So we got more into fintech products and that, you know, resulted in hiring slightly different personas to different teams. Um, we added the guestie for host, the you know the product for the small hosts, uh, which resulted in more of B two C you know personas compared to our original B two B personas, um, and I think that's the beauty of having such a diverse uh, company and product and culture. Uh, I think you always learn more from people that come with a different perspective, with new angles. Um, with the experience with different products or different customers. And I think it creates something very, you know, whole in the way the company operates. Um, one question before my last question. Um, <laughs> your mother of three, right? Do your yeah. kids know uh, how much impact you made on so many companies throughout the years? Do they value that at all? Uh, I think as they grow up, they start to understand. That's what I told Shaha. That as they grow, oh, you're right. We talked about your dad at some point. Yeah, I think I remember that 
uh, when my daughter was in the, during her army service in one of the courses, she had to do this like thing about impactful woman, women or, you know, something like that. And she talked to me to, to get my help. And all of a sudden she said, oh, wow, mom, I, I just realized you're an impactful woman, <laughs> right? And, um, and I, I feel that nowadays she really, she's, she's actually, it's funny, she's a student and she's also working for a tech company and the, the support team. And all of a sudden, she understands my world way better. And uh, I think you, you learn to appreciate your parents as you grow up in general. I, I feel I managed to appreciate my parents more as I grew up. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I hope I managed to give them some of the values that I give my employees. Um, and, and last question then. Um, we asked this everyone at, at the end. If you had to give, you know, look at your career, pick up one event or one thing, that would transpire into an advice you give to um, people who want to build their careers, scale their teams, um, you know, in the various stages of companies, what would that be? Um, two things I want to say, okay? One is, because uh, one is about career and one is about building your team. Uh, about careers, it's, I always have a very similar message. It's about taking risks. It's about understanding that you can't climb a ladder if you will not go to places where you didn't go to before. You always have to experience uh, new roles, new responsibilities, and you can't be, you know, shy away from experiencing new things that uh, you don't really uh, know. And uh, I felt I did that a lot in my career. I, I took those leaps of faith, and that really brought me to where I am today. And in terms of team buildings, it's understanding that you can never rest. Your team keeps evolving. The needs keep evolving. And you need to reevaluate your situation every few months, every quarter even. I, we, I'm i doing it at Guesty. We did it at Fiverr. You always have to think, is that the right thing for my team, for me, for the company now? And take the hard decisions when you need to. We'll take that. Um, so thank you so much, Bered, for being with us today. Um, it was really great having you. And Shachar, thank you. Um, and I feel like this was too short. I could stay on for another 20 minutes. <laughs> it's, it's always like that. You know, it gets interesting and you want to keep uh, keep on going. Uh, and to all of our listeners, uh, make sure to follow us uh, so you always know when the new episode drops. Me and Shachar are already excited for our next episode on How I Scale My Team. Thank you.